This show is part of the Head Stuff Podcast Network. Before we start this episode, I want to give you a little bit of a warning. The episode deals with sensitive topics that can be difficult for some people to listen to. So if you think that it might impact you, take care of yourself, skip this episode and we'll see you next week. Hello and welcome to another episode of Basically I am your host Stephanie Preisner and with me in studio today is Dr Vicky O'Dwyer who is a friend of the show and has been on with us before to continue um, the series, mini-series that we're doing I guess on abortion rights and abortion access in Ireland. Uh, Vicky is an OBGYN in the Rotunda and is I guess on the cold face you could say of this. Vicky thanks so much for coming to studio uh, to chat to me. So where where should we start um, since the referendum, I guess, the, the reason that we asked you to come into studio, I guess, was because I was getting a lot of messages from people because this three-year review is coming up, three years since we legalised abortion in this country, and there's a review coming up. And I think people are only now starting to be aware that what they voted for is not what they thought they were voting for. And actually, it's still quite restrictive here. People are outraged at in the US at Roe v. Wade, but there are still some states in the US who even now that they have made it more restrictive are more lenient with their access to abortion care than we are here in Ireland. Um, what are you, like what, on the cold face of it, how, how, how are you finding the change? So when we repealed the 8th and the new legislation came in, it allowed for termination under four different circumstances. So probably the biggest group that would access the service are those that choose to terminate pregnancy where it hasn't gone past 12 weeks. So that's 12 weeks and zero days. Since your last period? Since your last period. Right, okay. Um, so they're the biggest group who are accessing the service. Then there's the group with the fatal fetal abnormalities. So these are women who have a very much wanted pregnancy and will usually have this detected at their anatomy scan at 20 weeks. But the legislation is quite restrictive. So our legislation is that the abnormality must be fatal within 28 days of that baby being born. So there are a couple of conditions that we know are fatal. So things like anencephaly, where the brain doesn't develop, or renal agenesis, where there's no kidneys. But there are other conditions which may not be fatal. They may cause significant disability, or there may be a number of smaller abnormalities where you put them together and they could be fatal. And that's where a multidisciplinary discussion comes about where a group of fetal medicine specialists who are obstetricians who've done additional training will look at the overall picture and give their opinion as to whether it's likely to be fatal or not. And it's very different to the UK where their legislation says the termination of pregnancy is legal if there's going to be severe disability. So that tends to be a group of women that do still have to travel. The other two groups would be where there's a risk to maternal health or life, either in an emergency situation or a non-emergency situation. Um, those what would the emergency situations be? So the emergency situation, the commonest one I think that people would be familiar with was be, would be what happened to Savita Halepanaver, where her waters broke in the second trimester. She got an infection and unfortunately she died from that infection because the doctors weren't allowed to intervene. Whereas with this new legislation, we can intervene. And what does the intervention look like then? So terminating the pregnancy so that you can start treating the infection? Yes. Okay. So part of treating the infection is that the 
the pregnancy is removed as, because it's a source of infection and that helps the antibiotics work better. So there's two parts to it. Okay. And so when that wasn't allowed to happen before repeal the 8th, what, like what did they think was going to happen? Was it just like this might resolve itself or I'm actually just, I know it's not going to resolve itself but I legally can't terminate this pregnancy? So the previous legislation allowed us to intervene when there was a risk to life, but you had to wait for the woman to get sick enough to be able to intervene. Oh, right, okay. And once someone gets to a point where they're that sick, even with the best antibiotics and even with the best treatment, they don't always survive. Okay, so that's what happened there. And what's the fourth cohort of people who can access abortion care? So the fourth cohort is where there's a risk to the mother's health or life, but not not in an emergency situation. So, for example, if you had someone who had breast cancer in pregnancy, they can have chemotherapy and surgery in the second, third trimester. They can't have radiotherapy. And there's a particular subset who will have a HER2 positive breast cancer that need a particular treatment called Herceptin. And that cannot be given in pregnancy. So if that woman needs that treatment and she doesn't get it, it may impact her chance of survival. Okay. So that would be one example. Um, And that was one of the first cases that I saw of, of the new legislation was a woman in that scenario who had a very much wanted pregnancy and was left with a very difficult decision. She had other children, you know, she was worried well, what if she didn't have the treatment she needed and she ultimately, ultimately went ahead with the termination of pregnancy. And so if we go back, so so under 12 weeks, there's no problem. Let's talk about that for, for, for a second. So um, we did a podcast, I think maybe two years ago now, with Dr. Jennifer Donnelly, who's your colleague, um, about, OK, so I found out I've pre- I'm pregnant. What do I do now? And we went through obstetric care pathways. Mm-hmm. If you find out you're pregnant and you don't want to keep it, what are your options? Does it have to be through a maternity hospital? Do you have to, like, how can you go about that termination now under the new law? So if you're under nine weeks, it's generally done in the community. So there's the My Options helpline, there's the myoptions.ie website, and that will give a list of providers of abortion services within Ireland. And some people don't want to go to their own GP, they want the anonymity, and you can pick a provider that's close to you, that's convenient. Um, The provision of services isn't equal throughout the country. We know that there's a lot of provision in Dublin. In some of the smaller counties, there isn't there aren't as many providers. Okay, so if you're in like maybe rural Mayo, which is not a small county, but it is rural, you might, maybe only your GP is offering it and you might not want, you might want the anonymity. So you're kind of having to travel, but outside of your county rather than outside of your country. Exactly. So if you're under nine weeks, then the medications are given by the GP. But within the legislation, there's a three day wait. And this is something I would love to see removed when they um, look at the legislation again. So you need to see your GP. You need to be certified that you are under 12 weeks. And then you need to wait three days to think about it before you can have your medication. And I mean, no one comes to that first consultation not having thought about it. And I've seen women who have, you know, had the three day wait and still aren't sure. So I don't think it's helpful. I think it's patronising and I think it should be removed. It must put people on the threshold like if you're if you find out at nine weeks and then you realise that you're going to have to travel to a different county and you can't do that until you can get childcare or until you can give an excuse to your family, then you're 11 weeks. And then you've this like that three days could be the deciding factor of whether or not you're within the law to actually have the care. Is that 
the case? Yeah, we have seen some people who have not been able to have a termination in Ireland because they were too close to the 12 weeks and the three days pushed them over that. And how do they establish that you are, like your, your dates? Like, is it just your word of mouth of when your last period was or is there another way of checking? So if you're under nine weeks, yes, it's based on your last period. If you have a regular cycle, if you've no risk factors for an ectopic pregnancy, if your dates are certain, then you can go by those dates. If there's any doubt on it, if you're not sure of the date, if your periods are irregular, then you have to have an ultrasound scan done to okay. confirm that your dates are what they say they are. And would that also push it? Like, does that delay it further? It can delay it a couple of days, yeah. Yeah. Um, if you're over nine weeks, so if you're between nine and 12, you're referred to a maternity hospital. Not all the maternity hospitals are providing the service. A lot of them are, which is great. Um, Why are some of them not? They have chosen not to, I believe. Um, is it not like a lot? Like, do you not have to do this? So there is um, an allowance for conscientious objection. So if a doctor doesn't want to provide the service, they are legally obliged to refer on to a colleague who will provide it. But if you're in a small unit, there may be people who don't want to provide it and there isn't another option. There was funding given for all the hospitals to start up the service. So every maternity hospital could provide it. Okay, that's... That just seems very bizarre from where I'm standing. It is. And, the, and what I would say, though, is that the numbers are going down in that 9 to 12 group. Okay. That more women are accessing termination earlier with their GP. The earlier you do it, the safer it is. And is it all, are all of those abortions on, under 12 weeks, are they medical abortions where you take a tablet or do some of them have to be surgical? So the vast majority of them are medical. There will be a cohort under nine weeks that are referred to the hospital if they've complex medical issues. So that they need, you know, for example, one thing we'd often get asked is someone who's had a clot in their leg or their lung before and they're under nine weeks, can they have a termination in the community? And yes, they can, but they need to be covered by heparin injections to prevent a clot. So up until the pregnancy is terminated and for anything from two to six weeks afterwards. And when you have, say, if you don't, if you're not high risk and you have it in the community, do you take the tablets and have like have the have the wait for the pregnancy to pass in your own home? Do you have to be checked afterwards? Is there aftercare? Yep. So during COVID, actually, one of the good things that came out of it was that that first consultation could be remote. So you do a virtual consultation. The second consultation is where you take the medications. So the first medication we give is Mifepristone, which is an anti-progesterone. So it shuts down the pregnancy hormones. Then you're going to take like 36 hours later, another tablet called Misoprostol. And that basically causes cramping contractions. And usually after taking that, the pregnancy will pass. If you've no bleeding within four hours, another dose is taken. And for most people, that works. Um, There is a low sensitivity pregnancy test that's done two weeks post. um, And for anyone where that test is positive or if they prolonged bleeding, then they're referred into the hospital for a scan and further care. Okay, Um, so that is so that could be through your GP. And then if you're high risk, you may be referred to a maternity hospital that is providing the service. Not yeah. all of them do. Yeah. That's up to 12 weeks. So that's till nine weeks. Oh, sorry, so then nine the, weeks. the nine to 12 week group are automatically referred to the hospital. Yes. Okay. So when they come to us, they have their certification done by the GP saying that they're under 12 weeks. Their three day wait is usually complete. And then they come and see us and then their treatment is done in the hospital. On that day they come to see you or is that just another consultation? So the first medication can be given, the Mifepristone, and then they're admitted 24 to 48 hours later for the misoprostol tablets and 
there are higher doses and can be more rounds of it. And the reason that they're admitted is the bleeding and the pain can be more. Mm-hmm. So it's safer to do it in hospital. And there will be some women within that cohort that choose to go for a surgical termination. Is that up to the the woman? Yep, it's okay. up to the woman. And they can choose either way? They can choose either way. And... Um, Okay, so that's that cohort of people. What about the people who we spoke about then who have a pregnancy that is very much wanted, that is planned. They've probably had a 12-week scan that was all fine. They come to a 20-week scan and there's something there's something wrong. What happens in that situation? So anyone who has an abnormality at their 20-week scan is referred to see a fetal medicine specialist. Is there a case... Sorry, are all 20-week... Are there some... Would it not be, have been caught at a 12 week? So is it quite common that for the first time you'd see it at 20 weeks that there's an issue? Yes. So the way you can pick up things early on, so the non-invasive prenatal testing blood test, panorama or harmony, that can be done from nine weeks, that will screen for trisomy 18 and 13, which are Edwards and Patau syndrome, and they are fatal. So that can be picked up. And encephaly will sometimes be seen at a 12 week scan. But there are other conditions that you won't see until 20 weeks. Okay. And so those people have come to their scan, the sonographer is saying there's something wrong here. What happens from then? So then they get referred to a fetal medicine specialist. So, for example, in the Rotunda, um, we have a number of fetal medicine specialists. If you're in a smaller unit, you may be referred to Dublin, Cork, Galway um, for that opinion. They will usually repeat the ultrasound scan. They will often discuss invasive testing to check the baby's chromosomes. So that's an amniocentesis where they take a sample of the fluid and send that off for genetics. You'll get an initial result in about 48 hours for trisomy 21, 13 and 18 and then a full karyotype within two weeks. So that's another part of the the jigsaw puzzle where you're looking at this baby and seeing, well, what is the abnormality and could that abnormality be fatal? Sometimes there are a number of smaller things. As I said, when you put them together, they may be fatal. So then if it's not clear, there's a multidisciplinary team discussion. So that's where a number of specialists will meet, discuss that individual baby and what they think is the likely prognosis. Where it's evident that there will be severe disability, but not lethal within 28 days of life that's where it becomes very difficult because you have a woman with her partner and her family who are being cared for by a team here who want to continue to provide care but can't legally provide that care so they will provide support afterwards there's bereavement support but the actual termination of pregnancy they have to travel for that and so you're telling people your child is going to have like severe impairment in whatever form this is what we think it's going to be like but they're not going to die so we can't terminate the pregnancy and if you want to do that like are you encouraging them to to, to continue with the pregnancy by saying like it might not be that bad or or is it like no this is going to be quite severe and we would recommend that you do this or is it just you give facts you don't give recommendations you give facts you don't right. give recommendations and so some people will know what they want to do. Mm-hmm. They will say, look, I'm, I want to travel. There are some people that do continue who, yeah. even when they know that it's fatal, want to continue and want to deliver and have some time with their baby after it's born, before it passes. There is palliative care for those babies when they deliver and 
as I said, bereavement support through the maternity hospital. But you can't make a decision for someone. You yes, can give okay. them the facts, you can give them percentages, but ultimately you're giving them that information so that they can make the decision that's right for them and their family. So if they say, OK, I, I want to terminate this pregnancy and you say, OK, well, you can't do it here. Do you, what is the support like for, for that family to, to travel? So there are a number of providers in the UK. The biggest one is probably BPAS, which is the British Pregnancy Advisory Service. They provide most of the terminations up to 24 weeks. After that, there are fetal medicine centres. So I think King's... Um, Birmingham, Liverpool would be common ones that people would travel to where they provide the service. So, do, like, does do the family have to make that call? Do the hospital, like, liaise with the other hospital or is it all down to, to, the, to, the, to the parents, I guess, to, to do that? I guess all the information is given. I'm not a fetal medicine specialist, so I don't know how the referral yes. process works, but there are links there with the UK, yes. Okay, so then the person travels and they come back is there is there support after the after the termination if it hasn't happened in the state yeah so they get a follow up appointment with a fetal medicine specialist here and it's not just important for this pregnancy but for future pregnancies if something genetic comes up that that could have implications for the next time and would that have come up in the karyotype that was done possibly yeah okay so some people will choose to have a post-mortem examination for further examination of the baby and look at the placenta, further genetic testing if it hasn't already been done, which gives, I guess, a better picture of why this happened, what the recurrence risk is likely to be. And then within the hospital in Ireland, so for the terminations that do happen here, there is a bereavement support team and they cover everything from perinatal mental health support to practical things including burial if you're religious there's support in terms of that as well mm-hmm. um, and they they do provide a, a very good service um, and the, the bereavement team in the Rotunda are absolutely fantastic How does it work? How long does that take? So say you go for your 20 week scan and then there's something you have a CVS there's karyotyping and then a multidisciplinary team have to decide we can't sign off on, like, we can't say that it'll be 28 days. How many weeks are we talking for all that? Well, it could be two weeks to get your full karyotype and maybe another week to have that and does discussion. That, does that multidisciplinary team need the karyotype to have the discussion? Usually, yes. yes. You want the full picture, picture before yeah, you can make a call on it. Um, I guess as you get over 24 weeks in the UK, the law is a little bit stricter. Under 24 weeks, people can choose to terminate a pregnancy for a number of reasons. As a, as someone on one of those multidisciplinary teams or as the doctor who has to sign off on like, okay, this this is not going to survive 28 days after birth. What are, like, what are the pressures to make that call? What's the information you need to have to make that call and what happens if you get it wrong? So some of them are very clear cut. Um, the law is that you're making a decision in good faith. Mm-hmm. So based on your professional opinion and on evidence that's there, you can make a call. But, you know, it it is a difficult one to make because they've set the bar so high that it must be lethal and it must be within 28 days of life. Yes, yeah. Um, What happens then, for for the ones that happen in Ireland, it's probably worth talking through the process of what happens. So it's similar medications to what happens with the earlier terminations 
But if someone is 22 weeks pregnant or more, then normally there's a procedure done called foeticide, where a KCL injection is given into the heart of that unborn baby. Um, and it's done through ultrasound guidance by a fetal medicine specialist. It is painless for the baby. It's so that it isn't born alive and doesn't suffer. Yes. Um, and the whole process is very difficult for everyone involved. Once that is done, then the medications are given. So that mifepristone medication. And then the woman is admitted for misoprostol, which is the other medication. And it can work very quickly. It can take a couple of days. And sometimes with those mid-trimester, second trimester terminations, they can be a little bit prolonged. So we give the medications. If the medication doesn't work, they're repeated. Sometimes we have to take a break and go again. We don't offer surgical termination in Ireland above 12 weeks. So that means basically that the woman has to labour, like the woman has to deliver the, physically deliver the pregnancy. Yes. So we, so traumatising. It is difficult, but it is potentially safer than a surgical option. Of course, option. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, um, I'm just... And we give pain relief options. So everything from pethidine to an epidural if someone needs it. Um, and actually one of the things we're currently doing in the rotunda is we are going to create a bereavement suite. So this will be a room on the labour ward that is designed for a family to be, you know, the woman is admitted, the family can be there. It's not a clinical room as such. The support partner can stay with her the whole time. Um, there's a specific counselling room as well. What are the current provisions? Like if it's happening now, are you on a labour ward with live births happening? Potentially, yes. So if it's under 24 weeks, it's usually on the gynaecology ward in a private room. You know, you do have, I guess, some privacy, some time together with the support of the healthcare providers there. If you're later on, you require an epidural. Yes, it's on a labour ward. Yeah, which could be quite uh, upsetting as well. So that's the... So, so those are the women who are having who are sort of, I'm going to use the word allowed to have um, abortions here after 12 weeks. What happens then in the case of, um, let's go to the non-emergency situation. Is that where a woman, okay, so you gave the example of breast cancer. Mm. Where does the mental health thing come in? Because I can imagine that there are people who need to have a termination and the travelling part of it is such an impact on their like does that count as something that's an impact on their mental health to the point that it could happen here it does uh, the legislation is quite tight around this so two healthcare providers must say that there is a significant risk to that woman's mental health and that that risk must be alleviated by terminating the pregnancy okay so the first part they will usually see a perinatal psychiatrist who will say look yes this has had a significant negative impact on their mental health, whether that's addiction, depression, suicidal ideation, anxiety. What's more difficult is to show that the only solution or the, the, only, the best solution, the best solution is to offer a termination of pregnancy because there will be some women who their mental health continues to deteriorate no matter what you do. Somewhere having a termination has a very negative impact on them and there are some where their mental health will improve with mental health support, medication and a termination of pregnancy. Mm -hmm. But 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 the law says it just just the termination is the solution. And the other part of that part of the legislation is that 
they must be under viability. So generally, it used to be 24 weeks and 500 grams. It's probably moved back a little bit towards 23 weeks now because we're seeing babies survive at 23 weeks. So what? So a baby that is premature, only 23 weeks gestation, is actually surviving now? Is surviving now. Because of scientific developments or medical... Wow. Yeah. Um, so if you have someone, let's say, who's 28 weeks, then you can't offer them a termination of pregnancy. You may why would someone at 28 weeks be... OK, so that's this is not fatal fetal abnormality. This is just someone's mental health. OK, yes, yeah, yeah. So anyone under the, the health or risk to life, you can't offer a termination to. Now, you can deliver that baby and you can deliver a baby at 28 weeks for lots of reasons. We do it for, you know, severe preeclampsia in pregnancy. But it's different. You're inducing labour. You're doing a cesarean section and that baby is going to survive. Yes. Usually because neonatal care is so good now. Um, and so in the case of the the emergency situations, are they... So if you've got an emergency situation, one obstetrician can make a call on that, like the, the choreoamniosis infection picture. If you've got a significant risk to health or life and it's not time sensitive emergent must happen within 24 hours then two people have to sign off on that so for a medical condition like breast cancer it tends to be an oncologist and an obstetrician okay for mental health it's a psychiatrist and an obstetrician and in the case of breast cancer are there oncology teams in a maternity hospital or is it just that like the two hospitals would liaise with each other so with the maternal medicine service in certainly the bigger hospitals, there is a link with teams in the general hospitals. Right, OK. So they would make that decision together. There's a 14 year pr- uh, prison sentence, criminal liability for doctors who make the wrong call on whether or not uh, uh, whether or not an abortion should should happen. Is that something that is like it's it sounds very dramatic is it something that's enforced? Is it something that impacts doctors' decisions? Does it make them wary of not making a call just in case they're wrong? I think that's where the multidisciplinary team comes in. Because it's, it's not, not just one person. one person. It's a group of experts making a decision. And this might sound like kind of a crass question, but I just want to ask it anyway. Say it's down to a doctor to make a decision, yes or no, this this baby will not survive 28 days outside of the womb so therefore we're going to terminate this pregnancy here. How could someone know if if they were wrong down the line? Do you know what I mean? Because the, the pregnancy will be terminated so we can't prove that it would have lived. We don't know. Okay. The other thing that's probably worth mentioning is that there's an appeals process. Okay. So let's say for someone with mental health difficulties who's seen a psychiatrist and obstetrician in a hospital, they've said, look, I don't think it meets criteria. Then there is a central appeals process. And I believe it's similar for the fatal fetal abnormalities that there's a review panel and you can appeal to that panel and they must give you a reply. I think it's pretty quickly. I think it's within a week. Um, So it's not a finite, you know, my doctor has said no there is an appeals process where you can get a second opinion and from what I've seen sometimes the opinion is overturned and sometimes it's not. If it is overturned then they go back to the referring clinician and say look we think it does meet criteria can you now provide the service? I think most of the time yes is the answer. If the answer is no then another care provider will be 
will be They'll approached be to yeah. to provide the service. There's a review of the legislation coming up. Um, as like as an obstetrician working in this area, what would you like to see change? So I've actually been asked to help out with the review. Great. So there's there's a couple of great things that are happening. So they're they're asking service providers, they're asking service users, and they're also asking the general population. Okay. So I think they're getting a good overview of how the current system is working and what isn't working well and could be improved on. So I guess the first thing is that three day wait for the under twelve weeks. I think that should be removed. So then a person could just come in and get it get the medication maybe on that day. Yeah. Yeah. Um, if they're going for a surgical option, obviously it's not going to be the same day. But for a medical option, yes, it could be on the same day. And for women who are approaching that 12 week limit, it can be very important. Mm-hmm. The other group I think that is is difficult is that fatal fetal abnormality group. Um, I'm not a fetal medicine specialist, but from what I've seen, the bar is set quite high you know, in terms of you must be certain it must be lethal within 28 days. The legislation in the UK is different and maybe there's a there's a middle ground there. I don't Their know. Their legislation, just remind us, is it just disability? Severe disability. Severe. And, and who decides what's severe or is there a list of conditions that... There isn't a list. Right, OK. But I think it would make it... I suppose it would facilitate doctors here providing termination for... You know, couples where it's clear that the baby may die, but not in tw- within 28 weeks or that there may be a severe disability. And a lot of our fetal medicine specialists will have trained in the States or in the UK where women they're looking after would have definitely been offered a termination of pregnancy mm-hmm. and their hands are tied here. And do you, does it look, I know you're, you've been asked to get involved there, but does it look like those things will change or do you think Ireland, like I'm just thinking about the pushback of, you know, the even just the the hundred meters safe spaces for people not to protest outside and, and people are pushing back against that because they want to be able to protest and th- there's just still such a this is still such a flashpoint for people um well, there are some people that want to see termination available up to twenty four weeks yeah. like in the u k rather than twelve weeks. One of the difficulties with that is I guess we would need to have more training as as obstetricians and gynaecologists we don't provide surgical termination after 12 weeks and while it's an extension of a skill set that an obstetrician gynaecologist would have it would require more training but could it not just be medical up it to could. 24 weeks it could just be medical but in the UK it's surgical as well they offer both right okay um because it does seem like we we spoke to a journalist uh, in our last episode uh, who who went through the number of terminations that are happening here, but that also those sort of like over two hundred women a year who are still having to travel, and women who are having to travel in the height of like travel restrictions and COVID and really really difficult situations that it just seems like it's not going far enough. There's still I'm it may only be two hundred, but two hundred is too much women who are being failed, and I know that the obstetricians who are caring for these women feel like their hands are tied and would prefer to be able to like I'm sure you feel like I'm I don't know if you've had to say it to people but like I'm really sorry but we can't do it here because of the law and I know that from people messaging me on Instagram that they're absolutely shocked because they're like no but hang on like we repealed the 8th yeah no no we repealed half of the 8th kind of and I think part of the reason that the campaign worked the together for yes was that people told their stories and I think you know they're 
asking people who have been involved in the service to talk about the individual cases and the women who couldn't access the service here. And I think that tends to sway people. It's the personal experience. The other thing to mention is for women, we do see some women who are just beyond the 12 weeks who need to travel and can't afford it. So there's a group called the Abortion Support Network who help fund terminations through BPAS. And certainly in the Rotunda, we have a social worker who uh, is part of the team that looks after women accessing termination of pregnancy. And we do see, I guess, in the under 12 week group, unfortunately, there's a lot of social deprivation, domestic violence, you know, difficult financial circumstances. It's often the woman with two children who can't provide for a third child and decides to have a termination for that reason. So social work involvement is really important and having access to travel if that is needed is important as well. Final question. Is this a free service? Yes. So, yeah, the the third consultation, the, the review consultation, the other thing that comes up with that is contraception. So for the 17 to 25 year olds, we now know it's free, but I'd love to see it involved for anyone accessing a termination pregnancy that they could avail of free contraception. I think that's really important. Yeah, because as you say, this cohort of people who um, are terminating maybe because they just because of their situation at home is just not safe. Yeah. Dr. Vicky O'Dwyer, thank you so much for that. As Dr. Vicky was saying there, um, personal testimony has been a huge part of the Repeal the Eighth campaign and continues to be um, the most powerful way that um, minds are opened and only a mind that is open can be changed. Um, so we're now going to hear from someone who has been on this journey themselves. Taking a break from the show to tell you about our sponsor, humdingermortgages.ie, your new gaff without the faff. Humdinger are an award-winning mortgage brokerage and they specialise in finding the right mortgage for you. The best part is that you deal with the broker and they deal with every major bank in the Irish market so you don't have to trawl around talking to loads of people. They also make the best recommendation on what's the best way to proceed for you specifically and they stay at your side to help you at every step of the way from application to drawing down your mortgage. They're in the mortgage business, right? Not the application business. They have absolutely no interest in putting you through the ringer and getting you to fill out loads of forms without getting a mortgage at the end. And they're really honest from the get-go about what the problems might be with your application. But then they don't abandon you. They will stay by your side and give you the best advice on how to make sure that you are successful the next time you apply. They specialise in helping first-time buyers, people looking to trade up and people like me who are looking to save ourselves some money by switching our mortgage for a better rate. And like for me, I'm going to switch my mortgage. I'm working with Humdinger because like a reduction of even 0.5% on my mortgage rate can save me like 30 grand in interest over the whole term of my mortgage. Mortgages are the biggest financial decision you are ever going to make. So take advantage of speaking to experts and go to humdingermortgages.ie to begin your journey. So while I have you, I'm going to take the opportunity to um, take you hostage for a minute and tell you about the merchandise that we are selling. We have notebooks and pens, which are branded with the basically branding. And you should buy them. You should buy them because it's a lovely notebook. Who doesn't need a notebook? If you are a Headstuff podcast member, if you buy the notebook, you get the pen for free. It supports me. It supports the podcast. It supports the producers, the people who work on the show and means that we can continue to make these podcasts and give them to you for free. If you want to become a Headstuff podcast member, if you get a lot from the podcast and you think, God, I'd like to support Stephanie and the podcast, you can become a Headstuff podcast member for €5 plus that. uh, Or you can give more if you want to. Go to headstuffpodcast.com and you can click register there. And you pick a podcast. You can pick up to three podcasts. If you pick three podcasts, what happens there is that the €5 that you're giving gets split between the three podcasts that you're supporting. 
or you can pick just one podcast say you pick my podcast then you'll get my bonus material for free and all of the bonus material for all of the other podcasts on the network so it's a really really good deal five euro all of these special podcasts so if you want to do that do it I'll be very very grateful the people who are in the community the Headstuff podcast members are my favourite people they support the podcast they mean that you can listen to this podcast for free it's five euro a month I'm going to stop talking now, but I really appreciate your support. Thank you. Oh, and also, if you cannot afford to support the podcast, but you want to support the podcast, you can also give us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Leave us a good review or share the podcast with two other people. That's it. Just send the podcast to two other people who will listen to it, who you think will benefit from it. That helps to get our listeners up, which helps us get sponsorship. It's all how it works. And uh, yeah, I'd be really grateful if you do that too. Bye. Fireside is the Irish storytelling podcast. Every week you'll hear tales of mythic Irish gods, Arthurian knights or Norse Vikings. There is folklore from Ireland and around the world, and even historical legends like Brian Baru and Grainne Whale. Whether from poetry or prose, lyric or legend, if there is a good story at the heart of it, you'll find it here. I'm Kevin C. Olihan. I'm your host and fireside bard. With over 150 episodes and rising, there has never been a better time to join us by the fireside. As we've been talking about abortion on the podcast, um, we've also touched on the topic of TFMR, which is termination for medical reasons. And I'm not sure that people have... Um, a very real sense of how much of an issue that is in this country and how many women are still having to travel um, in order to get access to the care that they need. So someone has very kindly and very bravely offered to share their story of travelling for a termination. Uh, Orna is joining me now. Orna, thank you so much for for being willing to share your story with people. Thanks. Thanks, Stephanie. Do you want to take me back to maybe the start when 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 you got pregnant? Had had you been trying for a while, or how did it come about? Um, yeah, so it was in 2019, and um, we had been so this would have been our um, trying for our second baby. So we had um, a baby girl in uh, 2015. In 2019, I was 36 and kind of ready to try again. I was never going to have babies back to back. Um, so kind of enough time had passed, passed yeah. and um, so then we started trying we had been trying for maybe uh, six months and then um, we found ourselves pregnant April March April I think would be when I would have found out I was pregnant uh, with the due date of the 1st of December 2019. And did you attend like did you have early scans or how, how um, once you got the news, were you kind of telling everyone straight away, or how did you approach no, the well, pregnancy? Well, like um, I was, I would have always kind of waited. Like obviously, kind of people close to us, to like my mom and stuff, I would have told her fairly soon. But every like I would have been a person that would probably would wait until kind of the first scan. And actually, I remember I having my first scan just before we were going to a wedding, and um, kind of going, oh great, I don't have to kind of pretend. I can tell everybody at the wedding then because we'll have gone through the scan. So how many weeks were you when you did the scan? So that scan was 12 or 13 weeks and everything was fine in that scan. So we went to that wedding and we told everybody that everything was okay because it, it, everything seemed fine. It was the same as my first pregnancy, maybe a little bit more morning sickness but um, and tiredness, but that was because I had a three-year-old. Yes, you were as well. juggling a lot there. So you had the 12-week scan and... Mm-hmm. 
were you were you in a in the public system was your next scan scheduled for like 20 weeks was it Yes, so I was in the public system and even actually they'd said because I'd had no issues that I could go to kind of midwife-led care and everything, that they were happy with everything. Um, but because of my age, I had heard, and they don't, in different hospitals around the country, um, they don't always do anomaly scans right. at the 20 weeks. So I, I don't know if that has changed or not yet. So we were in Limerick and um, I know that in different other counties that they would do this scan, an anomaly scan you know as a general um but I had to ring to book for the anomaly scan and it was more just because I was over 35 and I just wanted another scan so I had to ring to book in um for that scan. So an, another woman who didn't book an anomaly scan would just be going in for a just a regular normal scan at 20 weeks or would they not be scanned at all at no. 20 weeks? No I don't think so like maybe 32. Oh wow okay. Maybe 32 weeks. Now, I, that could have changed. But yeah, at the absolutely. Time, but that was your that experience. Was, yeah. Yeah. So you booked in for the 20 week scan. Mm-hmm. And actually, um, I was it was delayed. I was 23 weeks and four days when I got that um, the 20 week anomaly scan. And talk to us about what that was like. Did you have a partner with you or what was the what was the day like? Yeah. So um, I was lucky because it was before COVID. So um, my husband, Paul, was in with me um, at that scan. And the consultant who did that scan actually is the one that we've, we've stayed with since. And she was amazing. Um, but she was like, oh, you know, I don't normally talk during scans. So um, just we'll do the scan and then I'll let you know. And um, she was kind of talking back and forth to another doctor who was in the room with her. And we paid no attention to it at all. And then uh, she turned off the scanner and she uh, told us that um there was signs of uh, ventriculomegalia, um, which is means that there is um, fluid in the brain. So it's kind of the the brain ventricles were uh, filled with fluid. So when she was giving you this news, it was just directly after the scan, was it? And was was there somebody else there with her? Yeah. So it was herself and another doctor in the room, and she just said look we're after seeing that there is fluid on the brain I remember her just kind of looking at us and touching her head and and just said that there is just um fluid on the brain and then she led us into another room um off of the the scan room and kind of sat us down and um we were sitting there for a minute and I remember just turning to Paul and going oh my god it's the brain kind of thing you know yeah anything else you could be like but I was like the brain you know, I just remember just saying those words. And um, she came in then with our notes and she said that she would have to refer us to Hollis Street and to, to try and get us to be seen as soon as possible in Hollis Street to probably get an MRI scan and um, to talk to whoever we needed to talk to. And um, she left the room and kind of um, got a counsellor um, to come down to us. And um, when she left the room, I remember Paul picking up our report and uh, he took a couple of photos of what she was after scanning. And thank God he did, because um, you know how everybody would be like, oh, don't Google it. Or, and she yes, had even yeah. said, you know, don't Google things or whatever. But um, for our, in our case, 
we had by the time we kind of we had a weekend to look over things we had looked into stuff and we realized the severity of what was after happening oh, and nice. with the numbers that were showing up on the scan um we knew it was pretty bad so that was on a, a thursday um and then we were booked to see people in Hollis street the next tuesday so i mean it was really quick so even though we were in the public system like you know we kind of gone past that threshold and like we were seen immediately by like really good people straight off and they did an mri of the uh, yeah, yeah so i went i i got there was an mri scan done on the next tuesday and um and then we were sitting and waiting and we were um to go into an for an ultrasound and i thought okay grand ultrasound when we walked into the scan room for the ultrasounds, there was six people inside there. Oh wow! Um, Why was that? And well, they had they had a consultant um, inside there. Um, they had a neurosurgeon. Um, they had people from Temple Street inside there to talk to us. Um, so there was a lot of people. So right, I realised okay. the minute that we walked in, how severe this was going to be. How severe it was. What what a big deal this was. And um, so they scanned me there and they kind of looked through the the basic kind of MRI scan. They hadn't the full report yet, but um, they looked through it. And I remember just um, looking at everybody and kind of myself and Paul had, because we had been talking about it for the, first, the few days beforehand, I think that I didn't even look at him. We both kind of known what maybe... Um, what what was going to happen or what needed to happen in our view or yeah I suppose like it isn't a choice like it was the severity of his diagnosis was so terrible um but not terrible enough because um so there was a neurosurgeon inside with us and he explained to us um what the diagnosis meant and he kind of said at, actually at the time we hadn't found out the sex of the baby, but uh, he had said, oh, it was X-linked. So I kind of um, knew then that it was a boy. Right. And um, he said um, he was ma- making an assumption, but he, he thought his feeling was that it was X-linked hydrocephalus and that our baby boy would be born with the ability to suck and breathe. And that was it. And right. they couldn't guarantee that the baby would die within 28 days of birth. So therefore, they couldn't do anything for us. How did, like, how do you receive that news? Is that all given to you in the same, like, just after this scan in, 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 in on that one day? Yeah, like I was, yeah, like I was still lying down. Oh so God. I was still lying down getting the scan. And, but I mean. And were they I saying this as good news or like? No, no, no. No, they were like, you know, this is um, unfortunately how it is. is. Yes. And, you know, obviously the neurosurgeon was there to talk to us about probably doing brain surgery on a newborn baby, you know, like with with his diagnosis, if if we had decided to continue with the pregnancy um, he would have had to go for surgery immediately to get shunts probably put into the brain to try and brain. Drain, drain the fluid. fluid from his brain um but with the numbers that were coming up on the scans he was already showing 
a severe amount of fluid on his brain like it goes from kind of greater than 15 millimeters is severe and at that point with being 23 weeks he was already up on 22 23 millimeters so like you know a lot and at what point when the when the when the doctor says we can't guarantee that it won't survive 28 days outside of the womb Mm. does someone step in then and say so here are your options or or how does the conversation I think I said it right I think I said it I said what what do we do um it's in the notes that they discussed termination of pregnancy but I think that I was the one who brought it up first but I can't be sure of that actually yeah um but I think I just said so I think I just said what are our options if we don't want to continue the pregnancy and they said well we can't do anything for you here in this country did they say they would like that they would support you to travel or how did you receive well what happened then was there was a midwife in the room and she left actually when we said that and she actually came back and she came back with I have them here she came back with three uh, photocopy pages one with a phone number for a a hospital in London one with a phone number with a hospital in Liverpool and one with support groups to help you and kind of obviously they were very sympathetic and I suppose the feeling in the room that I got was we made our decision and it wasn't like that we kind of spur the moment made a decision we had obviously realized the severity of it before we'd even walked in and then kind of it was just laid out to us there and confirmed um so I didn't get a a feeling that anybody disagreed with what what we were asking to do yes yeah um and but they obviously their hands were tied and they couldn't really do anything either and they were just like oh you know um we'll forward on whatever reports we can to you um for you to continue on with whatever decision you make and I just remember as well being inside there and the neurosurgeon had left and the consultant who'd done the ultrasound had left but there was two other female doctors inside there and the midwife I, I was obviously very upset and I was saying to them you know I, I I openly said I was like I canvassed for it together for yes last year yeah and um yeah and it was just like I couldn't believe that I was in that situation that so soon afterwards down. yeah yeah um so uh yeah so that was um so then we we left the hospital and um and we just went to a park and we kind of talked about things and what we were going to do and um there was no um I suppose what would have been awful for us is that if if the diagnosis wasn't as severe as it was and you had to um, make a choice or and yeah like I mean it wasn't like we wouldn't ever say that it was a choice that we had to make we just no. our, our 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 son would have been born into kind of um only pain really and straight um, into life-threatening yeah. surgery as well by the yes. sounds of it yeah and kind of and he probably I I I am convinced that I could feel him having seizures already um when he was in the room right so I think um I I I and it, that that's probably is the case but I, you know so he would have been coming into a life of just um con- continuous seizures on inability to sleep inability to kind of do anything other than 
suck and breathe, like the doctor had said. So And so were you left like so you're in the park with your husband, Paul, and mm. are you like from that moment are you just left to your own devices to organise the whole thing is there any follow up from any of the maternity hospitals or people checking on you well uh, so our consultant the consultant who had done the scan with us um, she'd given me her mobile number she'd asked me to contact her immediately when I'd heard Um, so actually I couldn't get through to her right then and there so it was when we were driving home that I was talking to her on the phone and um, she had presumed actually that uh, with the diagnosis that she had, which what she had seen a few days beforehand, that we would have been able to do something about it here. Right. Okay. Um, and I had said no. That they say that we can't. And she said okay, but like she had prepared herself even for that by even seeing what she had seen a few days before. Yeah. I I got the sense of that. Um. So the next day I went back into Limerick and I had an amniocentesis just to send that off to see maybe what the cause of this was. Right. Okay. Um. So I spoke to the consultant um that day and another consultant and you know we were just but but at that point um yeah we'd made our decision. However, yeah, from then on, um, it was up to us. So. I came home after um, going to the hospital that day and I rang the hospital in Liverpool and I left them a message and um, just waited for them to get back to me. Um, and then I was able to um, email them um, off all of the reports. And then I had to wait for a decision because I was so far gone at that stage as well. Like I was gone, I would be gone past 24 weeks even before we'd be able to go over there yeah um so that that so they had to make a decision um whether or not they would do it um and so I don't think I had to wait very long maybe a day or two to hear that the decision had been made and that we could go ahead with it however um they couldn't fit me in until the 30th of August so it was um that was the um uh, the 13th was when we were in Hollis Street. Wow, okay. It's a long time, isn't it? 17 days. Yeah, so it was a really, really long time. Especially I was quite visually pregnant, visibly pregnant at that point. And um, so, yeah, I just um, kind of, we we told our families, we had the support of everybody around us. There wasn't, the, the hardest thing was I had to go and um, tell my granny um so that was quite difficult so that took a bit of courage I suppose just to go and and tell her because obviously um I I had spoken to her the year before about the vote and I had so we had talked about it and I knew that obviously um not, not, not obviously but I didn't know where she stood and okay. at the, the, the year before um she probably took a bit of convincing um now I'm I'm still unsure as to whether or not she voted yes then. But um so it took another bit to go and actively tell her um what we were about to do. But um, you know, we had to do like I felt like we had to do that. I couldn't um I've always been uh very uh upfront about what we did. I for the most part, um with most people, I would I, I don't tend to say that our baby um 
well you know I would I wouldn't just say a stillbirth or whatever you know I, yeah. I probably would say that we terminated for medical reasons or yeah we had to terminate the pregnancy because he was so ill you know I've always kind of not to and just not to to, to be as um as honest about his his life um as possible or his journey as as we possibly could so um yeah so uh, that was so yeah I had to wait and um just stayed at home didn't obviously we didn't tell a load of people but you know um I was I, I told a few and um and we waited and then we we traveled to Liverpool so we we took a ferry because we decided that we so in between that time um I had to organize a funeral and I had to go on Amazon and buy premature baby clothes and I had to um yeah do all of those kind of things like plan a funeral uh while I could still feel him moving inside me so that was really tough that was fairly horrible um couple of weeks you know uh I I was uh, the thing that was probably lucky is that I had already um delivered my daughter before so I knew what giving birth or delivering a baby felt like and is that I, the there there my understanding is that there's two options there's surgical and medical mm, but that yeah but because I was so far gone um I had to labor and to deliver him wow, because okay. there is no surgical you know you can't like you can't um at that at that gestation you can't at it, that, yeah. you can't yeah and you and actually at the time when we decided i i it took me a while to even find out you know how what was this procedure that i was going for you know um like obviously i was in contact with liverpool um they have an amazing support group called honeysuckle um and they're very set they they deal with irish uh, people a lot so they are um, amazing over there. So so they were um, able to tell you what to expect once you they went were in. They were kind and... of, yes. So I was in contact. How long with... were you over there for? So we arrived on a Thursday. I was booked in for the Friday morning. And on that Friday morning, then we went in and um, we went through everything. We we paid for everything. And, um, and then we... Um, I got given some um, anxiety medication, I suppose, and the procedure to stop the baby's heart um, happened on the Friday morning. Um, so, um, and then they gave me some medication and sent me away and told me to come back um, that evening um, to then be kind of um, booked in then to stay in the delivery suite until uh, whatever length of time it took for the the labor to come about um so uh we were staying in a kind of uh, apartment in liverpool so we went back there and then we came back in the evening and um and i was there then i kind of started to feel labor pains that that night um and obviously you can take they, they will supply you with whatever drugs you need so that you don't um 
well feel supposedly much, not feel that much so I didn't want an epidural I didn't have one with my first uh, delivery and um and they kind of wanted you to move around a bit more or whatever but I felt that drugs um it's kind of slowed everything down so it wasn't until uh, the Saturday at 7 p.m that I delivered our baby and we called him Breen um so I was in the I was there for nearly 24 hours before I actually um delivered him and um was your husband able to be with you or yes he was there the whole time and you're in kind of a suite on your own like they're so set up for it um like they're just amazing I can't kind of portray uh how well you're looked after once you get there they know exactly what to be saying to you they are absolutely professional about everything the midwives are just amazing they do this all the time um and even like just the the suite the that the delivery suite that we were in we stayed there for two days and um you know you're completely separated and from everything so when Breen was delivered um they have a cold cot inside there so they keep the baby like it's a cooling cot so you can have the baby with you the whole time and um they swaddle they swaddled him for us and they just treated him you know like he was like he was there you know yeah um and they um so they they even like they have these memory boxes for you and they have these um they will print the handprints and the footprints for you and they take photos of him for you and um they just they're just so tuned into what you need like you need before you know what you need you know and and I've always said it's it's awful that we had to travel however when we got there and the and and how we were how well we were treated and the professionalism of everybody and obviously there wasn't any there was no like no stigma no nothing none of that you know um and and just even the facilities that were there I I I don't know if you would get that here you know um even if you could would it happen in a maternity hospital that are already overcrowded would you have to face up to hearing babies crying all the time you know that's what happens uh, to women here all the time if they have a stillbirth you know so so I can't kind of say enough for the for it was actually the care the that you got in in Liverpool and the care that we got there. And so then you travelled home with Brian. Yeah. Um. So we were there. So actually, um, it took a while because it was the weekend. We had to wait until the Monday um to register his birth. So we left the hospital, but he couldn't leave right. with us. Obviously, so we had to leave the hospital. We left the hospital on the Sunday at lunchtime and um I we decided because of everything we opted to have a post post-mortem done so um and that we only opted for that once we got over there um but I just decided that I wanted any questions answered and I just wanted to get as much kind of information of how or why it happened so um we got a post-mortem done so and did that confirm what what the Hollis Street doctor had said um it it did but actually in the end then more genetic testing um right, had okay. to be done so um 
like it was nearly a year later by the time we kind of all those results. done all of that as well. So with Breen, um, we went back on the Tuesday to to take him from the hospital and and even then they have this little nursery that they have him in and he's in a little cot and um it's just it's it's really lovely as lovely as as a funny word to use but you know it's just um uh you know and there's time you can spend time with him there um before you need to take him home but and 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 here's the thing things that uh, just the reality of 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 taking a baby home in a coffin um when we were there and it was the summertime they gave us um little cool blocks to put into the coffin to keep him cool and um a screwdriver so that you could open the coffin when you came home and um and it just things like that that you wouldn't know that you needed but you need um because you have to travel now with a coffin and um you know i was talking to one of the girls in the the honeysuckle support group and i was saying look um yeah, we we want to give some we want to they're a charity obviously so we were like we want to donate some money to you afterwards and she said she said oh that would be great we could buy more cool blocks and screwdrivers for people and cool blocks and screwdrivers aren't needed for people who live in England or Wales or Scotland it's, it's just for the so, Irish people yeah it's just so like it's just that little heartbreaking detail that's like this is yeah. happening so frequently yeah. because we fail women day after day yeah. that yeah. a charity in the UK has to buy extra cool blocks and screwdrivers because yeah. our law is so limited. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, we came home on the ferry. We had to we had to um you can de- like you have all the paperwork, so you can declare it. However, yeah. you can also just um my husband's car is in a state, so we were able to put the coffin in the back, like it's tiny anyway, but we just covered it with blankets. Yeah. And um you obviously have to leave the car when you go on the ferry, so that felt felt awful that you you just have to leave him in the car and um and go on the ferry and we came home that night and we were able to open up the coffin and uh spend the night at home with him and then we had arranged uh to go uh for a ceremony in the in a crematorium um the next day but uh because we brought him home we were able to have our family over the next morning and they were able to see him and hold him and everything beforehand. Um, obviously our, our little girl, um, we didn't, we didn't, um, see any of see this. Any of it. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, but, uh, yeah, but our, our family were able to, so it was, so when he came home, I mean, we were lucky you've heard of, horror stories of people obviously not being able to spend the time that we were able to spend with our baby or they had to opt for them to be cremated over there and then send home the ashes we were lucky that we were able to do it the way we did and we were able to bring him home and I was able to opt for I I wanted to have a cremation here and have his ashes here as opposed to a burial or whatever. Was there much support from the hospital after the fact or was like, had you been sort of discharged as a, as their patient at that point? 
No, there was. Um, so the counsellor that we spoke to, um, like there was a little bit. It was, I suppose it was whatever you needed. Okay, so led by you. Yeah, and also my GP. So my GP were, was aware of it as well. Um, and I was able to go to her very soon afterwards, actually. I remember she was one of the first, she was actually the first person that I met straight afterwards. Um, and she had made a point of, of of making me make an appointment with her for soon afterwards just to make, check, check up on you. me and kind of, yeah. But I suppose, like, I mean, I was I was lucky with the people, like the consultant that we had in Limerick. I was lucky with her. Um, I was lucky with the GP that I have here in Ennis. And I know she's actively pro-choice and she spoke during the um, the vote that was happening. So I didn't even need to question whether or not she um you know but i know that that's not the case for many many gps in the country or you know that you would still question what their feelings what their would feelings be about are. it yeah orna thank you so much for spending the time to go through brian's story um with us i'm so sorry that that such a horrible situation was made even worse by the fact that you had to travel oh. um but I hope that hearing your story, you know, I'm sure there are people listening who have absolutely no idea that this is going on that, you know, think, oh, well, I voted during the repeal referendum, yeah. so it's all sorted. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it just shows how much further we have to go in terms of, you know, supporting women and, you know, giving them access to care that they desperately need. Yeah. 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 Like, I mean, I think stories about people traveling and traveling like with cases like ours and um so I think that nearly in my feeling is that that nearly swung the vote for a lot of people that they saw the people like us going through it and and they voted but but and they voted yes but it's still happening yeah because of kind of the um the the way what they what they were able to put through hopefully stories like yours and continuing to talk about it I know there's a review built into the legislation so hopefully mm. we'll go a bit for, further Orna hopefully. thank you so much and I wish you the very best and uh, keep in touch okay thank you thank Thanks you so much this show is part of the Headstuff podcast network a hub for the creative and the curious shows are produced in association with Headstuff and the podcast studios Dublin find out more or become a member at headstuffpodcasts.com.